here is sharing knowledge on raising investment. Um, um, I do this every week, every Monday, with two of my colleagues. Uh, we've got Andrew Selfall and Stuart Townsend. Andrew, would you mind introducing yourself, please? Hello, my name is Andrew Selfall. I run a health tech startup based in Manchester, and we provide software for the NHS to help them manage their remote workforce. Thank you, Andrew. Stuart? Good afternoon, everybody, even. Yeah, Stuart Townsend, based out of Lancashire. Uh, I run a consultancy helping B2B SaaS companies grow their indirect channel revenue. And I've got a couple of investments, one in an SMS company and one in a podcast data company. Uh, thank you, sir. Uh, my name is Manoj Ranavira. I run an organization called Rate. We work with uh, early stage technology companies from pre-product, pre-revenue to all the way up to Series A and beyond. Um, we are not an accelerator. We just uh, deal with companies as uh, based on their specific needs, focusing primarily on product, getting the product right, and the commercialization of it before investment. We will go into investment at some point in time, hopefully uh, not uh, in too distant future. Um, but we, as part of this exercise, we started collecting investment data um, since May 2018. Uh, so we captured data saying that UK tech companies have raised over $9 billion in the first half of this year, which is unprecedented. Uh, and we share that data to a, a weekly newsletter that goes out on Monday morning prior to this event. Uh, and then, obviously, we get a chance to speak to a few of the founders. Uh, we have also turned that data into a um, web application called D-Lite. Um, and we also run two press release sites. We are not journalists. We just report. Um, we just publish press releases as we receive them, except we change the titles uh, because sometimes even the companies get a little bit uh, fussy about whether it's seed or pre-seed or series A, etc. We're trying to uh, streamline that a little bit. So today, typically we have four founders. Uh, unfortunately, Tim has to drop out. Uh, he sent his apologies. Uh, so we tend to structure the session in three between ourselves. Uh, I would sort of get the conversation going, get get an understanding of um, what uh, prompted the founders to start this particular company. Uh, Andrew will step in about around 20 minutes time to discuss the uh, investment journey, and then towards towards the last 20 minutes to discuss the growth plan. Uh, and we tend to go the way the uh, speakers appear on the um, on the screen. So we got first uh, Tom. Uh, Tom, you got Motorway, and uh, um, my understanding is uh, is uh, you're helping with uh, people buy cars. Uh, this is becoming, I mean, people have been buying cars for a long time, but suddenly this is becoming quite a uh, serious business. We've seen what uh, Kasu has been doing, you know, uh, they achieved growth uh, very rapidly. Um, would you mind sharing your journey, what uh, got you to start Motorway uh, and where you are, please? Thank you. Uh, sure. So, yeah, we, we don't help people buy cars, but we are a used car marketplace. Um, and we solve a very specific problem. As you say, there's a lot of activity in the car space right now. Um, 
But what we focus on is a really specific problem, which is helping people to sell their car in a new way. Um, if you own a used car and you want to sell it, it's a really frustrating experience. This is what drove us to, to build this company. Uh, we'd always had an awful time trying to sell a car. Um, because whatever you try and do when you have a car you want to sell is, is you have to compromise. So either you try and sell it on a classified site where theoretically you get the most money, but it's a huge hassle and uh, low likelihood of success. Or you can part exchange your car, which is uh, potluck, kind of a lottery. You might get a good deal. You might not. It's hard to know whether you did or not. Um, or you can take it to a instant car buyer like We Buy Any Car where uh, you will get a low price for your car, but it's convenient. And so we we looked at this problem and thought, why why is there uh, such an awful experience for consumers? Why is there no transparency? Why is there no choice? Um, and that's what we tried to solve with Motorway. And it's a big problem. There are 8 million used cars sold every year in the UK. That's about 60 billion in transaction value. So massive industry and huge consumer problem. The way we solve this is... Um, we help you profile your car using just a smartphone. So you take 16 photos of your car and answer a short questionnaire. We provide you an instant uh, estimated value for what we think we can achieve for the car. And it's then entered into a daily online-only auction for car dealers. And car dealers will then bid on the car. Um, and we have over 3,000 dealers using the car, using the platform at the moment. Um, and then the winning dealer will win the car. So we remove all of the traditional... Uh, steps in between all the middlemen that um, that kind of erode value in used car transactions, and we just help consumers get the highest possible price for their car, all online, all without leaving home. The winning dealer will then come and collect the car from your house and take it away, and, and they pay you for the car. Uh, and we typically achieve for people about fifteen to twenty percent higher value for their car than they could anywhere else, uh, and we remove all of the kind of horrible experience that people are used to. So it really is a kind of 10x better experience. And we're changing the way that car dealers buy cars. Um, we're helping them move online um, and, and begin to, to make their businesses more efficient. So we launched about uh, three and a half years ago. Uh, we've now scaled um, to about 200 people um, in the team. And we're doing about 5,000 used car sales every month. So, uh, yeah, so we, we've come a long way in a short space of time. The last year has obviously seen a, a really big acceleration um, within this space as the pandemic has forced everything to be remo remote and everything to be online. And the used car industry was not ready for that, but we were built for that from day one. So we've kind of really seen a lot of um, a lot of growth in the past twelve months. Does that give you a good good idea? Thank you. Maybe I'm not having problems on the meeting side. That's great. Thank you, Tom. No worries. Sorry, Andrew. Um, so uh, I think we've been uh, all right with time. Uh, so uh, Tom, uh, if I I'll, I'll move to Ravi now, uh, so you can unmute um, now. Sorry. Uh, Ravi, uh, you are building an exciting business. Um, all three, all three are exciting. Uh, but I have some uh, personal experience of trying to build an electronic invoice in platform and getting everything wrong. But uh, those days, uh, obviously, we didn't have some of the fancy stuff like APIs and, and um, PSS2 and everything else. So can uh, you give us a brief about what got you to start this company and where you are now, please? 
Yeah, sure, Manoj. So uh, great to be here and uh, would love to hear more about your story, Manoj, because I'm sure we can pick some learnings from your experience and, and it's valuable. So I would love to connect with you on that subsequently. Uh, you're right. What we're trying to do is basically help uh, uh, get cash faster and uh, help them with sales as much as we can. Uh, and the re reason is that we feel that while there are many platforms out there, there, there aren't platforms designed for small businesses. And when, we, when I say small, I'm talking about businesses who turn over, say, less than 80,000 pounds even. So most of them would not be even VAT, uh, need not have VAT uh, registration. Uh, and Coupe is here to uh, just offer that, you know, make, make it accessible to them so they can use it. And it's simple, so it's designed for their needs. Uh, now, two things drove me personally to do this. One is uh, the huge problem of late payments. And uh, the, the other bit is uh, being on the other side as an, a consumer to pay an invoice. And I know, uh, you know how much a pain it is to do a bank transfer to someone. You've got to register them and then make the payment. And I would keep deferring it uh, until I really have to. Uh, and... Uh, with some personal experiences, these two kind of came together for me, and I felt, wow, with open banking, we can just make it so much simpler for businesses to send a payment request and, and a smart invoice, as we call it, and for consumers or other small businesses to pay them in four clicks rather than having to go through any hassle. So that's where this really came about. Uh, and uh, there are uh, six million small businesses in UK, but if you go by the unofficial estimates, uh, Enterprise Nation seems to believe one in four of us now have a side hustle, especially post-COVID. So that's that's you know anywhere between 15 to 20 million uh, people that we are looking at who uh, who either full-time or part-time are offering their services and goods to someone else, and we can help them get paid faster. So do you, do you see uh, Stripe uh, as a competitor or somebody that you could work with? Yeah, so if you if you look at the kind of uh, the two types of businesses, one are businesses that you rightly saying use currently say Stripe or a PayPal to solve this problem for them. Uh, now uh, they pay end up paying anywhere from two to three percent of their sales uh, to these solutions, which. Uh, I think is just not fair when large enterprises get far better deals. Uh, so we are here to just change that game there. And with, with solutions like Coupe, they can save 90% of their payment fees. So that's that's going to help them a lot. But more than that, it's just very, very simple compared to a card-led payment infrastructure where you can get disputes and chargebacks and things like that. And then there's a, there's a huge uh, number, of probably a larger base of businesses who just send up their bank details for them to be paid. Uh, and that's a lot more common. And I fundamentally believe that's because they haven't got a convenient enough solution at the right value. And now thanks to open banking, it's just making account-to-account -account payments that much more simpler for a very, very marginal cost. So I think the value proposition is now looking really exciting uh, from a small business point of view. Um, that's that's interesting to hear. Um, thank you, Ravi. If I may uh, move to James. Uh, James, you are setting up, uh, uh, you are operating in the insurance sector. Uh, would you mind uh, sharing how you started the business and where you are now, please? 
Sure thing. Yeah, nice to meet you as well, guys, and thanks for inviting me on Manage. Um, so I'm the founder of uh, Bequest. Uh, we effectively uh, have reinvented the way life insurance should work. Um, for those who don't have life insurance, before we uh, launched, uh, you know, you'd either typically buy some near enough protection on a comparison site and, and pay a lot for, or if you wanted actual full protection, you know, you'd wait between about three to six weeks. There are some archaic uh, barriers in here as well, such as having to see the doctor uh, for blood pressure results or before you can get a policy in place. Um, so in late 2019, uh, with our underwriter, we built a whole new life insurance proposition, um, removing all the medicals, being able to do it all online, it being a sufficient amount, which is half a million, and you can get all of this done and sorted from your own sofa autonomously. There is a live chat obviously available for, for, for people with complex questions. Um, and the proposition here was to actually just introduce a way of buying life insurance that the millennial market, you know, the, the people between 30 and 45, have come to expect. You know, millennials are now actually buying properties or, or starting families, and the way that they've already been able to acquire complex financial products uh, before life insurance is so, so different to what was currently being offered. So we just basically raised the bar uh, we're meeting expectations of what people want and how easy it should be to get life insurance. Uh, and, we, and we're doing that all on uh, our own platform. And that's the quest. Um, th thank you, James. Is, is, is it um, is Bequest live now or are you still in development stage? Yep, yep. No, um, so we went live. We went live about a couple of months ago when it came to our wills offering. We offer free wills. Um, and our life insurance product actually went live uh, out of beta mode on Friday. Um, so yeah, yeah both, both, are, both are available now for people to jump on. Yeah, because I just uh, pressed the get started button. It, it takes me in and asks me to log in and not, there's no sign up at the moment. So you might want to take oh, it. Yeah, that's actually something that's changing. So if you click log in, uh, you'll then see sign up. Oh, right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna finish a little bit early and hand over to Andrew. Andrew, you always complain saying I don't give you enough time. You got more time today, man. <laughs> Thank you, man. Yeah. Well, there's never enough time really is there, with this because you know some often some some really interesting stories. So, so with Tom, um, lots of chatting about kind of motorway, and you have raised uh, forty-eight million in, in your Series B. Uh, so you seem to kind of hit, hit the ground running, you know, with uh, with your investment. I've seen kind of your background. Can you tell us a bit about your your journey to the latest um, round, please? Uh, sure. Um, so, so we we've done three rounds of funding in total. Um, in fact, we've done four. So the, 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 when we started the company, it was just myself and my two co-founders, and we self-funded for the first about six to eight months while we kind of built the first product ourselves, uh, began to market it uh, and make sure that we had something. And we we, we previously had a startup. Um, so in fact, the three of us have had four startups together. The first three were kind of successful. They were all bootstrapped. So we never had any investors. Uh, and so they were all kind of not massive businesses, but, but profitable. And I guess that kind of taught us 
uh, how to run a business in, in to some extent. Uh, we then had one which didn't work out at all after that, which is our first venture-backed company, which was a hotel price comparison site called um, called Top Ten, uh, and we raised uh, in in total there I think about twelve million dollars in venture capital investment, uh, and it went from doing really well to being unable to compete with the really big players in hotels, uh, and we ended up having to shut down the company, which was. Uh, pretty traumatic. So we've sort of seen both uh, the kind of positive side of running a company and building a company and exiting and so on, and also the really hard part. Uh, and so in that situation, we lost about 12 million um, for VC investors. You, you made nothing from that. Uh, and also we, we kind of had to let go the entire team of 40 on a single day. So that was pretty tough. Um, and, and, and that, that was before you started coming out when you started to send that. Yeah, exactly. So that was, that was around yeah. 2015, 2016. So yeah. um, I, I mentioned that only because it definitely informed the way that we started Motorway. We, we uh, said that we wouldn't raise any external funding until we'd proven to ourselves that we had a mm. model that was going to work. Um, because we had had previous success, you could argue that that sort of makes it easier to raise capital um, because you kind of have a track record. On the downside, um, that's, a, that's a sort of dangerous grounding to start a company on, really, because uh, if you raise money before you have something, then, um, you know, it takes, it, it changes the way that you build it. Um, and mm. we, we wanted to start with our next one from really kind of first principles of let's, uh, test and learn. Let's work out. And we, you know, you don't know where it's going to go, right? Whatever idea you have at the beginning, it's never what it ends up being. And so we, we, we got an office. We spent about six to eight months working on ideas, and they, they were mostly in cars, but not all in cars. Um, but we very quickly came to this kind of point around selling a car, and we felt this was something we could genuinely improve. We learned a lot from our hotel uh, business that even though we built a really awesome company and a great product, it wasn't 10 times better than the competition. Um, and so we started yeah. from the point of view of whatever we build here has to be defensively, uh, you know, order of magnitude better than what else is out there because that's what you need to break an industry and to really win. So, so that yeah. took us quite a long time and we self-funded until we had our first product live and generating revenue. Um, and at that point we, uh, we did a, a kind of angel round with a few people that we've known for a long time. Um, and that helped us to hire our first two employees um, and to just sort of scale the marketing. Um, and then I guess about six months after that, we did our seed funding round, which was with Local Globe and Marchmont Ventures, um, which I think was around two, two million pounds. Um, okay. And that's when we, we, I guess, began to go down the more... Uh, kind of linear route of scaling and then fundraising. So we, so we scaled from there quite rapidly. We then did That was part, was part of that where you had Kazoo's chief head tech. Didn't, uh, didn't kind of that they get involved as well as, uh, as an investor as well. Um, Alex Chesterman, who's the founder of Kazoo, mm. was one of the angels that invested oh, in, the seed, in, yeah. in the seed round. So we had about seven or eight angels alongside Local Globe and Marchmont. And um, it's worth saying that at this point, he was still working at Zoopla and hadn't yet launched Kazoo. Sure. Um, so, um, but yes, no, so Alex is a, is a, is a you know, angel investor. Um, 
again, along, along with a bunch of other people. Um, so, yeah, so that was the seed round. That was 2018. And we did our Series A in March 2019, which was with our same investors, actually. We began talking to some external investors, but uh, but in the end, the internal investors were keen to do it, which is great for us because we, we've got a great relationship with them. It was working very well, um, and it was faster. So that, that's when we did the Series A. Uh, and then since then, you know, as I kind of mentioned earlier, we've grown very, very rapidly. Um, the economics are strong, so we weren't kind of needing to raise money uh, too quickly. And we didn't really want to because we wanted to wait till we were at a point when we, we we were really ready for that next phase of growth, which I guess is when it comes to the Series B, which we which we raised, um, yeah, uh, very recently. So that, that, was a, that was the first time we'd ever done a proper fundraising process. So we... we put a list together of, you know, several investors and did a kind of structured pitching process, um, which... Uh, what do you mean by a proper one? Because, you know, the series A, was that not a, a proper one? You know, so 11 million. No, I, I, I say that in, in because it, uh, it's the first time I've done what people would, would say is a proper fundraising process, which is where you build a, a list of investors, you kind of go through a structured process to get all of that happening at the same time, and then you, you kind of drive it to conclusion. We'd never done that before. So our seed round and our Series A were kind of a, a collection of sort of loose conversations that started that kind of then kicked it off into a round and then it happened very quickly. But we never got into a situation where we were running a process with, with several investors all running in parallel at the same time. Um, so this is the first time I've done that. So that's, I guess that's what I mean by a proper process. Yeah. Um, and yeah, yeah, and, and we're really thrilled with the results. So yeah, we we got um, you know Index Ventures and BMW I Ventures um, and Unbound as well, which is a, another really interesting fund. Um, so that that's what kind of formed the uh, uh, the final round. And that's, I mean, you, you, you mentioned before. I mean, we often we, we hear kind of again and again it's all about kind of the team and and if you've kind of got history. So you know, having um, having a team that's a you know. You, you bootstrap kind of three businesses, uh, majority of those being kind of successful. And did, did, did the one that wasn't, did that ever kind of come up? Was that an issue? Or by that stage, when you're ready to raise, you'd actually proven uh, the, the, the model anyway, and it wasn't really kind of an issue. It'd be interesting for those those that maybe, uh, you know, extraordinary with, with, you know, a particular venture, you know, how, how much is that, does that play on, on kind of future kind of trying to raise seed money? Um, it's a good question. I mean, I think um, I think maybe in Europe there's a, there's a sort of different view on failure, if you like, than you might have in the in the valley. Um, I, I mean, in general, I would say it's seen as a positive. I mean, it's not easy to build any kind of venture at all, and anyone who's done that knows that the kind of margins between success and failure can be incredibly thin. Um, and I think anyone that looks at someone who's built a business and it didn't work out and kind of judges them to be a poor entrepreneur as a result is, is probably never done it. Um, and yeah. so, so, so I don't think it does um, look bad. Also, you know, we, we did, as I mentioned, lose a bunch of money for investors in that, in that, in that venture, but we, but we had a great relationship with them and continue to have a great relationship with them afterwards because they were with us on that journey and, and know that we did everything we could to make that happen. And so, you know, they were also able to provide um, references on us, which I think is, is kind of helpful. Um, so, no, I don't think it was a negative. I think, if anything, it's a positive. I think investors look at the founder journey and whether that be someone who's 
built businesses in the past, whether they've been a success or a failure, or they've worked in an industry that they're, you know, they have deep sector knowledge potentially in an industry. You know, yeah. they're always going to look at the background of the entrepreneur and see how that experience is, is going to be helpful in, in scaling this venture. Um, but of course, it's helpful to have success behind you and your, your background, and that, that definitely makes it easier in the early stages. Yeah. And um, I don't think it's like any kind of revolution, revelation to say in the early stages, it's mostly about the team because, you, you know, you just don't have that much traction in the idea at that point. But as you get, as you get on, and certainly in the Series B, there was a lot less about who we are and a lot more about the business. What have we built? Where's it going? You know, how does it fit into the competitive landscape? And it's just a very, it's a completely different conversation to the seed stage where it is very much about like how much, um, you know, can these guys do it? Yeah. yeah. Well, thank, uh, Manoj, did, did you want to come in with any kind of questions? No, no, I'm fine with that. Thank you very much, Tom. Great. Well, Tom, I uh, appreciate that. Um, you, you can put yourself on mute now, uh, and I, I'll um, move across to, to Ravi. Um, Ravi, uh, so you, you've got your 200k kind of pre-seed, um, helping sparkers to get paid. Um, it'd be great to hear kind of uh, your journey to, to that pre-seed. Uh, I mean, did you have an MVP at, at, at that point? Where are you now? Um, yeah, could you tell us a bit more about that, please? Yeah, sure. Uh, so, so Andrew, my my story is slightly uh, odd one because uh, before Kubernetes, I, <laughs> <laughs> I, I I've had experience of a successful startup, but not in UK. So, so I moved to UK mid of 2019 uh, after exiting from my previous startup successfully, and and I came here. I didn't know anybody. I didn't have access to any investor network here. Uh, so for me, I while I had that learning and knowledge and experience, which obviously incredibly helped me, I had to really build my sort of understanding of how the investor market works here and, and who they are and how should I reach out to them. So that's kind of a mix of two. Uh, and uh, in terms of our ethos, it was similar to what Tom shared. So we, we did, we kind of wanted to see if uh, if we were an investor, would we invest in Coupe? and and that's a really important question to answer honestly. And I think if you can, if, if the answer is yes, then that just fuels your own self with a lot of confidence to actually pitch your organization to investors. And that's the kind of model uh, we adopted for Coupe. So for us, we put in our own monies. We got to a point where we had an MVP going. Uh, we had some customers using it commercially, uh, paying for our solution. And that's when we said, yeah, now it looks like, you know, it all checks out. So yes, I agree with Tom that uh, you know the difference between failure and success is very thin. But at least uh, from whatever we could answer, uh, given our stage, it seemed like we had answered that. And and we had, uh, if if we were investors ourselves, probably we would put in our money. And that's when we started talking to other investors, uh, external investors, to uh, to engage with them and 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 uh, ask them to participate and work with us. Great, thank you. So, I mean, with your, so you had, uh, did you, you had, you had a rich investment when you were in India, is it that, that with, um, was it the Minda Group? Yeah, so we had, uh, yeah, we had a strategic investor in Minda Group, which is invested in, uh, because of the synergies they saw in what we were doing hmm. to where they, uh, where they saw the future of automobile industry going. 
so we didn't have your classic uh, VCs uh, as such to invest. Uh, uh, but nonetheless, all, all that network was uh, not relevant here when I when I came here. Yeah. Um, so, so I mean, yeah, you get kind of the, the payment side. You've deliberately kind of chosen. Um, you know, you mentioned all those very small businesses below the kind of the, the VAT threshold. Um, how much of that um, was, was discussed as part of the the, the, the pre-seed round and the kind of the, the potential kind of for growth and you know, the, the size of that market? And yeah, you know, I'm interested. I don't want to kind of get into Stuart's question, but is this just looking at kind of the the UK only at, at this stage? Uh, so I, I guess uh, we we have to uh, we, we are UK first. We are here, so we have to do well in UK. Mm-hmm. So we have to show enough evidence that uh, we are uh, given the stage we are in. We are doing kind of uh, it, it's looking promising here, but also we can scale up enough in UK because it, it is true that when you go into a new market in a new country, it's not easy and it's not cheap. So. Uh, before you would ever get the resources to do that, you have to do the job well in the country you're in, and therefore UK becomes really important in that context. It's also equally important that if you are just a UK company, unless the market is really big, it's very difficult to justify uh, how you would kind of get into you know multi-million pound valuations and, and hundreds of millions uh, of potential uh, uh, uh valuation upside so which is where you know it's it's always important to have a global perspective so i think that's that's kind of been our strategy so we've been very clear about it that for the first couple of years we will be in uk and only in uk and we'll do a good job here but actually open banking is not restricted to uk europe has already adopt is is adopting it and then moving fast and then there are other markets like us australia southeast asia which are also moving in that direction fast so it, it is an emerging global opportunity, which we're excited about. Great, thank you. And uh, some of this money was from uh, SSC. Now, that, that's an angel network. How did you find that, that, that process as a founder? Sorry, I, I think the voice broke a little bit. Oh, sorry, apologies. So, so, um, you raised money from SSC. SSC. SFC, we'll get my kind of teeth in, um, which is an angel network. So rather than going directly, you went through that network. What's, what was that process from a founder's perspective, and how did you find that? So, uh, again, because it was a COVID year when we were trying to get investment, I think we uh, it was uh, it was not an easy year to raise investment. So we started, uh, we, we went out having our own assumptions, and uh, when we started chatting with angels and uh networks like SFC, we, we started realizing that uh, just post-COVID, there was a lot more, uh, people were a lot more reserved and they uh, they were, uh, you know, the valuations you would expect or the kind of monies you would expect to be invested were very different. So we had to then, uh, so, so I think the initial phase was a lot about just having informal chats with a lot of people just to understand what the perspective is post-COVID because we thought it would change or it may be something different. And then once we had enough feedback, then we kind of properly went out uh, with uh, how much we want to raise, uh, sort of roughly at what valuation we would expect that. Uh, and and our, our initial introductory charts really helped in that because we had built those relationships uh, in kind of talking about what we intended to do and what were the benchmarks we would set out for ourselves. And then when we went down, uh, say six months later, when we went back to some of them and SFC was, was one such, uh, 
it just gave us a lot more credibility when we were talking to them and it also put us in a good position because we were clear what we wanted and uh, and that was based on some uh, some quasi real feedback from investors who would put in their money uh, and so so sfc particularly but uh, sfc i think i met uh, them uh, way back in march 2019 and uh, you know we talked about coupe very generally uh, and and then i reached uh, back to them in December 2019 saying, hey, now I'm ready. I want to talk seriously. <laughs> and then thankfully they, they, they liked what we did and, and, and we worked, started working together, which is fantastic. Ravi, thank you very much for, for, for sharing that. Um, uh, you can have a rest now, put yourself on, on mute. And uh, over to you, James, at a request. So um, you, you raised initially some kind of pre-seed money and now you're up to, now you've kind of raised seed. I wonder if you could tell us about kind of at what what point uh, in in the uh, in, in the life cycle of the question you, you're now at with uh, with your seed raise. I mean, I think you mentioned here. I mean, thank you for joining us this morning. Did you like it? You went live Friday. Um, you know, all, all, all going well so far. Yeah, yeah, no, um, <laughs> all going well so far. Well, um, we did a pre-seed round uh, back in uh, September 2019, just before we. Uh, fully realized, okay, yeah, this is what we want to do. We wanted to do a lot of R&D before we actually, you know, went out and raised investment uh, to actually build this product. Uh, this is actually my second business. Uh, I did my first and uh, exit in 2016. Uh, learned a lot from that, obviously, especially in regards to when you take investment, who you take investment from, uh, when are the right times uh, to also protect you as, you know, as, as a business owner. Um, so once we had done the R and D on a pre-seed investment, which came via founders factory, uh, who have a commercial, uh, partnership with Aviva, uh, which made a lot of sense for us. Uh, we then completed that about within about three to four months after. And then we realized, okay, yeah, we know this, this is what we want to do. Uh, we got regulated, uh, with the financial conduct authority. And then we went out to raise originally, we were looking to raise 1.2 for our seed round uh, with a max at 1.6 to 1.7, which is what we closed in December, just gone. And uh, we made that announcement, as you know, this month um, until we were live. Brilliant. Would you tell us a bit more about kind of Founders Factory and, uh, and, and how you found out how that works? Mm, yeah. Um, depending on what you want to go and build or, or what you're creating, uh, it should depend on what decisions you make if you join an accelerator or an incubator. Uh, and my former business, no, I didn't, I didn't join a, an accelerator, but this business, it, it made a lot of sense to get involved with insurance as quickly, uh, as possible. Well, what did you have at the stage of when when you joined it? Was it the idea? Did you have kind of the initial, you know, um, kind of a, you know a very basic MVP? What, um, mm. yeah, how much thought had been put into it at that stage? That's a great question. So, like, I actually hadn't put much thought about into life insurance until I actually lost a friend of mine in an accident, in a car accident, and then I was just thinking, and that's when it hit me. That's when I was like, oh, whoa, okay insurers they really only care about the physical the house or the money in the bank but what about the digital assets and as a millennial i have more digital assets than i have physical assets uh sure the value might be different in these but they're still 
it's still property of mine. I still have an intent as to what's happened to this uh, if I'm no longer around. And that was the biggest disconnect that existed at the time. Um, and that's what we wanted to plug. Okay, and, and did they help kind of build a team? Did you have a team that you took with you? No. Well, we used to first check if what we wanted to do to life insurance was even legal. You know, okay. a lot of people still buy it through brokers or a doctor's appointment is required. Mm. And we were just like, this just shouldn't exist. You know, you and me right now, we could open up a a joint account on Monzo and it'll take us like 20 minutes. But if you wanted life insurance or a very real product, if you had a house or a family, you know, that would take you weeks to do. So it just didn't make sense. I thought it was out of date. And then after about three months working with, you know, big, big uh, insurance uh, partners in the industry, we realized, yeah, that this is just out of date. We can, we, we can, we can address this. We wanted to address the policy as well. So the policy they actually sell addresses mental health uh, issues, which we know is, is more debated these days and, and talked about. Uh, so we wanted to be a first in what we covered, but also how we covered people. Um, and, and that was originally the proposition. And over, you know, it's been about a year to, well, say, 14 months where we've been obviously getting that built and regulated and, and then out of beta mode into a live mode, which, as I said, was only last week. So it's interesting now you, you know part of you know some of the investments you're through Aviva, so some of these kind of you know massive kind of monsters in uh, uh, mm. in, in insurance now are, are kind of taking where kind of you know millennials and, and and how you know we want to abide by products and how we want to interact with financial institutions now. Mm. Yeah, yeah, they're very engaged. The whole insurance industry is so engaged; it's it's really encouraging. Uh, we speak to underwriters and have great relationships with underwriters that we don't actually work with. Uh, on any product at the moment. Um, it's, it's a very collaborative industry. Well, James, thank you very much for, for sharing that with us. And um, I will hand it across to Stuart to pick up on the, the final uh, section of today. Thanks, Andrew. That's great. Um, so this round of the hour is about just going into a little bit further about how you're going to use the money and spend the money, um, which is always good. And we'll follow the same sort of route in terms of starting from the top and going round. Um, so if we can just open the floor up to you, Tom. Obviously, you're, you're further down the road with your investment and where you're going for massive growth. be interesting to see how you're going to market... Um, and again, a couple of my friends do sell cars and, and that sort of thing. And the challenge they've had over COVID is actually getting enough stock. Um, is that something you've seen over the last sort of 12 or 18 months? And has that helped accelerate your revenue and your sales opportunities? Um, yeah, good question. De- uh, definitely. So, you know, we, we effectively build a source of stock for car dealers. So they're able to acquire cars directly from private owners through motorway. Um, where their traditional sources of stock, so a car dealer might traditionally go to a, a kind of traditional offline auction, like British car auctions, where they would kind of drive there, spend a day there, walking around cars and so on. That hasn't really been happening. Um, and, and it's led them to sort of change their behavior in, first of all, just accepting that they can buy cars remotely through online platforms, um, and then do it sort of more efficiently through motorway. So that, that that's led a big kind of shift in dealer behavior in terms of how they buy stock. Um, and it's helped us really build the dealer base because we've, we've built a really good resource for them during times when it is hard for them to get stock. Um, so yeah, so that, that's definitely been helpful. Uh, in terms of how we're planning to kind of market, we uh, our, our main 
source of marketing is actually to sellers rather than dealers. Our dealer base has grown pretty organically. Um, but our seller base, which is consumers wanting to sell their car, they're the people that we want to reach. And we've been, um, we've been growing that marketing reach a lot over the past couple of years. So we, we do a lot of online marketing. Obviously, we also do radio at the moment. So we have a kind of national radio campaign. Uh, uh, which is working really well, and, and we're so uh, some of the investment will be going into accelerating that kind of building of the brand. Uh, and we want to we want Motorway to be the first place that anyone thinks of when they want to sell their car. Um, and so there's a there's a market education to be done there that the uh, the existing ways that people normally do it are not the best way to do it, and that we believe we have a better way. So it's trying to get that behaviour change to happen. So uh, we'll be investing in TV and. Uh, further in the channels that we're currently on. But I would say a very big part of, of the investment round that we've done is about talent um, and building out particularly the product team at scale. Uh, we have a lot that we want to build and and we're building really complex things. So we we, we need um, you know the best engineering talent that we can get. So a lot of the investment is, is also around the team. Perfect, thank you. And in terms of um, your revenue model, then is it a two-sided marketplace in terms of the actual consumer? I want to sell my old Vauxhall, and um, I can put it through. Then as a charge, and then is there a charge for the dealers to be on the platform as well? Uh, it's completely free for consumers to sell their car, so there are no fees at any point in the process. Um, for dealers. Yes, we charge on the dealer side. It's completely free to use, but we charge a fee for every car purchased. So it's a kind of graded fee based on the value of the car. But those fees are lower than what a dealer would pay in a traditional car auction. So uh, it's both more efficient in terms of their time because they're buying online, uh, but also the fees are cheaper. And they're also getting the car at a better value because they're getting it direct. So um, we're really what we're trying to do is to basically make the transaction far more efficient for both sides. And really by kind of cutting out the middlemen, we're, we're able to deliver more value to both sides. And because we're online, uh, it's a much more efficient from a cost point of view as well. Yeah, that's excellent. Yeah, because I know um, with some of the charges that Auto Trader have for dealers and those some of, I won't call them your competition, um, around that, that they're quite... Um, yeah, they're quite interesting charges. They're quite high. Um, but the fact that you're not charging the consumer and that opens it up so I can actually put my car on there, there's no barriers. And then again, it drives that more marketing aspect is is great because, um, again, I've just sold my car a couple of months ago and I can't remember how much I paid on eBay and Auto Trade. It seems like I was paying more out in fees to advertise it and it was only a couple of the people that were getting rich rather than me. By the time I'd took that out of the car, it was like, well... There was no point in selling it. And like you say, I might as well just sent it to auction, but then that's a load of hassle as it is. Yeah, and these these are the these are the problems that pervade the, the car industry at basically every turn. Um, and it is difficult to change because there's a lot of ingrained behaviours, there's a lot of complex infrastructure. But when you overcome that and you kind of strip away all these crazy business models that are already in place, you can deliver something much better. And I'm sure that you know there are lots of similarities there in the insurance industry as well just you know hearing james talk about life insurance a lot of that um you know reminds me of some of the things that, that happen in the car industry too so yeah and i think you um by taking a really fresh set of eyes on a industry you know we don't come from the car industry so we had a very steep learning curve uh on the downside but on the plus side we came with a really kind of fresh set of eyes 
saying, why is it like this? And that's crazy. We should just do it differently. Yeah, they're very um, stuck in the ways, most definitely, <laughs> which is perfect. No, that's excellent and, and great. And one, one, one last question as well, uh, in terms of motorway, you may have covered this already or I missed it, is are you looking just to stay in the UK? Are you looking to grow out and expand your marketplaces? Um, so we, uh, both, I mean, for the, for the time, for the time being, we, we are very much focused on the UK. So last month we did 5,000 sales, which is a big number. That's about 60 million pounds worth of, of cars in a month, but that's still less than 1% of cars sold in the UK, uh, last month. So we have a, a huge way to go just here in this market. Uh, and to Ravi's point earlier, I mean, I think if we were in another industry, we'd have had to think globally from day one. But because the car industry is so big, uh, you can build a really meaningful business just focusing on the UK. Having said that, um, we, we definitely believe that the model can work in lots of other places too, and we'll look to do that in due course. But we're keeping very focused on the UK market for the time being. Perfect. Yeah, I think yeah, you've still got plenty to go at, and um, I'll be referring you on to a friend of mine as well. He's always trying to get stock. He has a dealership about... 200 300 cars at any one time so that the, the challenge is stock and he hates auctions excellent well tom thanks for joining us again today really appreciate your insights into what you're doing as well um you can now go mute you can have a rest uh, i'm going to go no over to, thanks. Th- thanks again um i'm now going to go over to yourself ravi uh and just be interested again a little bit around your, your disrupting again another industry we've got you know disrupting cars and we've got open banking um, around that as well and about invoicing and payment platforms it'd be interesting to see how what you're going to do with that investment are you looking to drive sales is it building the platform what's the next steps around that for you the next for the next six months yeah so, so my, my answer to that one is, is a very classic answer you know for a company in, in our situation so essentially what we have promised our investors is we'll do two things one uh, we will build a model, uh, a sustainable model to get new customers to find us, sign up with us and start using us. And, and this is vital because uh, when we are talking about small businesses, uh, you know, the kind of uh, value you would make for uh, such customer uh, engagement would be very low. Uh, so we need to ensure that our market, it, it's, a, it's an inbound marketing funnel rather than an outbound one. Uh, and it's sustainable, it's, so, so therefore uh, it's kind of runs on auto as, as long as we've cracked the right messaging and the right media where to, you, where to reach these, uh, these businesses. So that's going to be the, the significant uh, chunk of work that is set out for us to achieve. Uh, so therefore by, by the seed round, we should be able to say, hey, you know, we can, we, we can get signups for so much and, and it's scalable and therefore now it's justifiable for us to get, uh, get the next round so we can actually invest and start scaling up. Uh, having said that, the other vital piece is technology and uh, you know, while we have uh, a live product, uh, but uh, you never have uh, enough resources to do a 10 on 10 job. Uh, so for us, it's, it's less about adding more features, but it's more about just whatever we have, we just polish it to 10 on 10 levels. So whether it's the onboarding flow, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, the, the user experience. So all, all those areas uh, we, would, uh, we would invest in and uh, also expand our tech team uh, who can really own the product and, and, and be passionate about 
uh, ensuring that it's it's absolutely 10 on 10 for, for the users to use and experience. Perfect. And yeah, again, you, you're challenging this space where it's a small business and around payments and invoicing, which is always the most sensitive side of that business, which is trying to get those payments in as quick as possible. Um, there are a couple of initiatives at the moment that some of my friends are involved around trying to get big businesses to pay small businesses quicker. So I'll take that offline with you later on because there may be some segue there. Um, but in terms of your um, sort of going to market uh, model, are you looking, are you saying about inbound, are you looking to look at um, partners to go through with your banking partners and um, all those sort of aspects? What's, what's, the, what's the thinking there to get these proof points to verify it going forward? So, yeah, there are a couple of uh, channels, I mean, essentially three ways we would like to get uh, customers to find us and sign up with us. Uh, one would definitely be direct, and this would be just uh, digital marketing and, and, you know, trying to kind of, uh, because of the nature of the kind of business we are targeting, uh, hopefully we should find them uh, on social uh, networks. And uh, from whatever we've learned, hopefully the problem is severe and intense for them to uh, to see a relevant message and sign up. So that's one hypothesis. Uh, the second was definitely uh, partnering up with others uh, who have already found these customers. So for example, accounting platforms, CRM platforms, uh, less so much banks because I, I think uh, the banks still uh, are yet to embrace open banking in, in a way that it would drive their business. Some Some do, but most banks still see that as a regulate, regulatory uh, job that they need to deliver and therefore they're doing it. So I think uh, less so banks, but definitely other software platforms who already have those kind of businesses uh, using their, their, their platform and therefore we can uh, be complementary to what they're doing. Uh, and then hopefully if we do our job well, we'll, we'll get some good chunk of organic uh, signups as well. Uh, and because uh, because of the nature of our uh, platform, uh, our user would send a payment request to somebody else who would be who would not know not know Coupe. So uh, hopefully, some of them would also have businesses and they would discover Coupe in that experience of paying uh, and sign up as well. So that's the third hypothesis we have. Perfect, yeah. So you'll do that um, affiliate referral type model where if it's a B2B transaction, just make sure that you're mentioned somewhere and somewhere along, along the line it drags in a new customer as well, which is a, a nicer, scalable way to grow your business at low cost, most definitely. And totally agree on your point about banks and open banking. They don't seem to be uh, moving along at pace around this at all, are you? But, but also one, one space when you're ready to tackle the US, if you can tackle that as well, because trying to get wire transfer payments from the US is... Uh, yeah, that's a whole different story. Yeah, I mean, uh, interestingly, and, and I didn't know this, and I've experienced this both by my travels to US and also then just learning a little bit more about payments and wire transfers. And it's, it's surprising that US is probably a couple of years behind the UK and Europe. Uh, so, so like ACH payments and faster payments, and it's, there's a big difference uh, even even today, which is very very surprising. Yeah, I think they're in the dark ages still, most definitely on that one. <laughs> Ravi, thanks again for your insights and spending the time with us today as well. Really appreciate it. And I'll reach out to you with some um, ideas for some introductions that I can bring you into as well, and some people that I know that um, maybe I'll help you with some of that early sort of finding customer base. Love that. Love that, Stuart. Thanks for having me. Thank yeah. you. 
no problem. Um, James, going to come back to yourself now to wrap up the hour um, around what you're doing and disrupting the insurance market as well. So we've got some real disruptors again today, which is awesome. Um, just good to understand with the, the investment where you're going to um, take that in terms of growing out the business and disrupting it and, and what's the plans to execute against that. Yeah, no, no, it's, a, it's obviously a, a question that most startups raise investment on being able to answer and show. Um, for us, life insurance isn't something that needs to be hard sold. You know, it, either people want it or they don't. And, and, and people who want life insurance either have just bought a house, just got on the property ladder, or, or have just had their first or second child. So we just want to exist in, in this world. We don't feel that there's any use in trying to sell life insurance to someone who doesn't have a reason uh, to secure their assets or their finances uh, for their family. Uh, but it's also not a product that we don't think uh, that people want to be even pushed into doing. You know, So the idea of adding 12 months free Spotify uh, onto this product, it's just actually not where we're seeing traction at all. What we're able to do is we're actually able to create some really interesting content uh, for single fathers or single mothers. Um, and then what we do is we uh, get into their industry. We either uh, work with their community leaders or we do specific uh, advertising campaigns uh, to these groups. And then we listen to them. We host uh, user feedback interviews. Uh, and then we we, well, we optimize the product for the next, for the next version. Um, for us, we have to exist where our market is as opposed to the other way around. Um, you know, there's 30% of people in the UK have life insurance. Uh, the market in the UK is worth just shy of 200 billion uh, every year. It's vast. And a lot of millennials, there's millions of them, about 11 million that, that should all be approaching uh, protection now, looking for life insurance. Um, and we hope that the way that obviously Bequest has built its product uh, falls in line with the way that they handle their other financial affairs as well. So for us, we just need to just keep cementing ourselves in the right communities um, and then expand out. Makes total sense. And I think also, um, you know, targeting millennials, you've got a lot of millennials coming through now that have made some really wise investment decisions over the last 12 to 18 months that have got uh, quite a lot of capital um, and should mm. be making wills and digital assets and digital keys and things like that that need to be documented. Mm. And and, um, and and if you go to, a, I will say, a high street sort of environment to do that sort of thing, it'll just be beyond them um, and they won't even get what you're talking about. Yeah, like the COVID has been such a driving force for people getting their life admin in order. Um, life insurance has seen over 4,050% spike in interest. It's the largest spike it's ever had in its recorded history. Um, and then the amount of people, uh, I, I say millennials, but actually we do, we do, we do have customers uh, in their 50s as well um, who, who use these products. But the wills, you know, we, we launched that as a reactionary product to COVID because we, our life product wasn't ready and we knew that we could create some kind of value here to help people. Um, and we had over a thousand within weeks. It, it, it really was different. And the traction is certainly still there. I, I think we don't need a pandemic to learn about our own mortality or, or to get our life admin order. I don't think it's, well, you know, we won't forget this for the rest of our lives. Um, 
but it's just been very, very clear when you look at the stats. It really, really hit the the thirty year olds that you know that 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 group that that, that are entering and starting to like activate adulthood. I guess you could say they've just done this during a pandemic. So I, I think their priorities are very, very different. Yeah, I agree. It's definitely um, made people more aware about thinking about these types of things. And I think, again, um, Willie's always, always at the forefront of people's minds at the wrong time. So I try to bring it in yeah. now and help them understand it's just going to help you. <laughs> no, it's not It's not the thing you want to talk about, but get it documented now yeah. um, and align it. It's uh, And again, just with your messaging and sort of what you're talking about as well, it's, it's a different from your standard life insurance offering, which... I am, I am 50. Um, normally, that sort of thing I took out when I've got a mortgage and I've put it against the, mm. protecting the the house being paid off, you know, in, in the event that I pass away. Mm. Exactly. And, and, like, that's the thing. It's, it can be such a boring industry. It can be such, like, a, a chore. Um, but by just slightly gamifying it, making it feel like you're actually completing a to-do list um, makes you feel pretty good as well, doesn't it? So, um a lot of people around the, I'd say, over 45, uh, this wouldn't be, they wouldn't be taking out their first life policy with us. They'd actually be either amending a previous will or taking a second uh, life policy out in case the other one is uh, either coming to the end of the term. And obviously, as we know, the younger you are, the better always uh, on price it comes when it comes to life insurance. Yeah, most definitely, most definitely. Well, James, thanks again for giving us your time and um, where you're going and what the direction is. And thanks for all our speakers today. I'm going to hand over to Manoj to do wrap-up notes and say thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Stuart. Um, uh, I was actually, James, I was actually filling the form because uh, my wife keeps saying I need to sort out my life insurance. So I probably want to have a chat afterwards. <laughs> Um, Brilliant. Let me know if, uh, if you have any questions. Uh, I'll obviously help you out if you need any help. Yeah. And you can tag test and you all the on- online one. Uh, yeah. Yeah, some feedback. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's quite, quite, quite easy to do because I tried to um, go for life insurance earlier, and uh, especially through the comparison side, it's a bloody nightmare. So uh, if you can make it easier for people like me who's, who's uh, not done enough, so that would be great. Thank you very much. So just uh, just to wrap up, uh, thank you so much for uh, uh, Tom, Ravi, and James uh, for giving up one hour of their time. Uh, we we know how hard it is on Mondays. Um, so and and sharing amazing stories of uh, what uh, prompted you to start the business uh, and and the, especially the the funding strategies you have adapted and and the the growth plans. Um, um, in terms of turning around the business, you know, uh, generating significant revenues and shareholder value. Uh, thank you very much. So we, we hold this every Monday uh, around 12 o'clock. We don't do this on public holidays, but but UK doesn't have many public holidays, so it's pretty much every week. Uh, we, we're going to wrap up the room now. Uh, oh, sorry, close the room. Um, if you are listening, uh, please do consider rejoining us next week. Um, and you might also want to follow us, um, especially the UK Tech Startups Club. We now have over, over about 1,700 followers and members. So we want to continue to grow this community uh, and invite people like Tom, Ravi, and James to come and share their amazing knowledge so that we collectively we can all learn and uh, improve our businesses. Thank you so much. Take care and have a great week. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you.